Welcome to Cato. I am the director of bioethics studies here at Cato. A um, lot of you, I think, are new to Cato, so I would just like to mention that Cato is a nonprofit research foundation <coughs> dedicated to expanding policy debate into issues and principles involving individual liberty. And today we're going to do that by discussing market solutions to the human organ shortage. Um, there has um, been some discussion about the uh, Iranian paper, so I thought I would start out by saying so it's clear right up front that um, we are not, no one here is advocating that the adoption of the Iranian model for organ procurement and vending. Um, but I think we'd be remiss in not discussing the one country in the world that claims to have solved its organ shortage by allowing the sale of organs. So Dr. Hippen has done a very careful study of all the available data, which he admits is not the best possible data that could come out of a country, but um, he has taken a very careful look at it, and he's going to give us his insights, both good and bad, for how um, the U.S. might want to learn from the Iranian experience. Um, so actually, also, I think you should have gotten a uh, biographical sketch of each of the speakers, so I am going to... Um, Go ahead, Dr. Mattis. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and um, hand the podium over to Dr. Mattis without any more ado so that you, we can spend time with, uh, with the actual discussion instead of lengthy introductions. Oh, thank you, um, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, my interest in this topic started a number of years ago when I heard a presentation against compensation uh, for donation. And in fact, the argument seemed to me somewhat ethereal. They included, I'm against it because it doesn't feel right. I'm against it because it is wrong. I'm against it because it's repugnant. Yet as a transplant surgeon and physician watching patients deteriorate and die on dialysis while waiting for a transplant, these arguments uh, didn't seem to carry a lot of weight. And I actually went to the literature trying to understand what, if anything, was behind these arguments. And I've spent some time trying to learn about this issue. I've actually seen the pictures of donors from unregulated markets in the third world, pictures that are shown in order to shock you. Yes, at first glance, the topic of payment for organ donation doesn't sound right, but patients dying while waiting also doesn't sound right either. It seems to me that in a perfect world, there'd be no kidney disease. In a perfect world, there'd be no poverty. But we're here to discuss the realities in today's world. My challenge to you today as you hear these talks is to think past this initial feeling of discomfort. My hope is that you'll agree that a regulated system of compensation for donation would work for the Western world. I'd like to at least give you a background of four important facts. One, 
A patient with kidney failure has limited options, transplantation, dialysis, or death. Two, survival of transplant recipients is significantly better than waitlisted transplant candidates on dialysis. Three, the quality of life of transplant recipients is far better than waitlisted patients on dialysis. And finally, the longer a patient is on dialysis, the worse the transplant results. Because of the success of transplantation, the number of candidates on the wait list has continued to grow as more patients are opting for a transplant, and there's not been a commensurate increase in the number of organs. In fact, there's over 74,000 people in this country waiting for a kidney today. As a consequence of this disparity between number of people wanting a transplant and the limited number of organs, the wait time has continued to grow, And in many parts of the country, this is now over five years, and in some parts of the country, it's approaching 10 years on the wait list. As a consequence, we're now seeing patients dying while waiting. In 2001, about 6% of patients on the wait list died each year. By 2005, this was over 8% per year. It's critical to realize that these were all acceptable candidates when they were first put on the list. We looked at deaths on our own wait list at Minnesota. In fact, you can see the mean age at the time of death was about 54. Many of these people were young at the time they died while waiting for a transplant. 70% of them at the time of death were waiting for a first transplant, and 70% would have been easy to find a kidney for if there were sufficient organs. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. Scholdedel have noted that there's 134,000 people in this country who weren't waitlisted within one year of developing renal failure and yet survived over five years on dialysis. This is another 134,000 patients who probably would have been good transplant candidates. Currently, as you know, there are numerous attempts to increase the number of available living and deceased donors uh, in this country. And all of them, of course, should be encouraged. But the reality is that there's still a shortage, and none of these is going to provide sufficient numbers. In fact, Sheehy et al. have estimated that if every potential deceased donor in this country became an actual donor, there would still be a shortage of organs. So the main argument for compensation for donation is simple. A transplant provides better survival and quality of life than dialysis. Waiting for a kidney, waiting time for a kidney is over five years. Potential recipients are dying and suffering while waiting, and these were all acceptable candidates when listed. Despite decades of effort, there's been little increase in organ donation, and if all potential deceased donors became actual donors, there would still be a shortage of organs. Compensation for donors could alleviate this problem. Therefore, prohibiting compensation is tantamount to sentencing some transplant candidates to death and others to unnecessary suffering on dialysis, and those in favor of prohibition must present potent arguments to justify this death sentence. There are additional arguments for a regulated system. Sales are happening anyway in an unregulated fashion which doesn't protect the seller or the buyer. Legalization may minimize these unregulated sales. And prohibition of sales interferes with the potential seller's autonomy. As Janet Radcliffe Richards has stated, 
In a surprising contravention of our usual ideas about individual liberty, we prevent adults from entering freely into contracts from which both sides expect to benefit and with no obvious harm to anyone else. So the proposal I would like to put on the table today is for a regulated system of living donor compensation. The elements are shown on this slide. Payment is by the government or private insurance company. There would be a fixed price paid to the donor. Allocation would be by predefined algorithms in the same way that we allocate deceased donor kidneys today so that everyone on the list would have an opportunity. There'd be a thorough donor screening, informed consent, and safeguards, and no other living donor commercialization would be legal. The payment could include a choice of options, including life insurance, health insurance such as access to the VA or Medicare, tax deduction, college tuition, or a direct payment. It is critical to differentiate what I am proposing today from the unregulated markets that have failed elsewhere in the world. In these, the donor and recipient find each other or a broker is involved and a price has been negotiated. The problems include that there has been no protection or follow-up of the donor and only the wealthy have been able to participate. What I am proposing is a regulated market with a fixed price, protection for the donor, and everyone on the list has an opportunity to be transplanted. The limitation of my argument is that it only applies to societies or geographic areas which are willing to provide long-term health care, long-term follow-up, and appropriate oversight. It's important to recognize that a regulated system of compensation is economically feasible in this country. We've estimated that the expected average savings to the health care system by moving a patient from dialysis to transplantation is about $95,000. Therefore, there would be about $95,000 per patient to pay for the administrative costs and the payment to the donor. I'm not alone in the wilderness on this. Really? One minute? Uh, on, on this issue. The Bellagio Task Force on Transplantation, Body Integrity, and the International Traffic and Organs has found no ethical principle that would justify a ban on sales under all circumstances. The International Forum for Transplant Ethics concluded that the discussion of organ sales needs to be reopened. In terms of the public, there were two surveys uh, in the early 90s when the organ shortage wasn't as short, saying that <clears throat> over 50% favored uh, compensation. A recent Gallup poll, 16.5% said they would be more likely to donate their organs if paid an incentive. In the Netherlands, Cranenberg noted that 5.5% said there was a very great chance they would donate if there were compensation. And in my own field, about 70% at a recent winter meeting of the American Society of Transplant Surgeons said they would be in favor of a trial to determine whether compensation would increase organ donation. Now, as I've reviewed the literature, there have been an increasing number of arguments against compensation, and I'd like to at least go through them in, in a way to, um, to at least let you know, uh, give you a rough idea what they are. Obviously, I can't deal with all 23. I think it's important to recognize that at the end of the day, one must cut through all the passion and rhetoric and ask this question. What's the better option? Establishing a regulated system of compensation, even if doing so might be easy or might not be easy or perfect, or maintaining the status quo 
under which transplant candidates are suffering and dying on dialysis. We accept donation. Any successful argument against a regulated system must distinguish between compensation and donation. If any aspect of organ selling is against the interests of the vendor, it is not the getting of the money, but the loss of a kidney. If donating a kidney is legal, and if the only difference between donating and sales is monetary self-interest, and if monetary self-interest doesn't itself warrant legal prohibition, we should allow sales. It is legal for persons to sell parts of their body, thus monetary self-interest alone doesn't warrant legal prohibition. These are the categories into which I've divided the 23 wrong arguments, and I'll just run through them each quickly. First, there's arguments that don't distinguish compensated donation from conventional donations, such as harm to the donor. The surgery would be the same in both cases. There are arguments for which there is no data, such that donation should be altruistic. Well, in fact, as most of you know, donors have numerous motivations, only some or part of which are altruism. There's certainly a continuum between pure altruism and payment. There's arguments which are not logical, such as I've mentioned already, that unregulated sales have failed elsewhere, therefore we shouldn't consider regulated sales here. And in fact, as I go through the literature, there's 14, and these are covered in the policy uh, analysis uh, that you have uh, before you. There's one that Dr. Delmonico has made before, which I don't think is logical, and that's Congress has uh, considered sales and rejected it. Therefore, it's a bad Congress, a bad idea. Well, <laughs> the fact is times have changed, and this was considered at a time uh, when wait times were much shorter. And I think that most of you in this room would agree with me that the United States Congress doesn't always get it right. Importantly... I think there's an argument about and concern of commodification of the body. Implied seems to me that a paid donor will in some ways lose human dignity and be seen as a provider of spare parts. But there's no data to suggest that sperm or egg vendors or surrogate mothers have any loss of dignity. As Gill and Sad have stated, my kidney is not my humanity. Treating people as commodities with no say in their own destiny is totally different than letting them decide for themselves what to do with their own bodies. An extension of this argument is that establishing a system of compensation will harm society as an individual's value will shrink to be the sum value of his or her body parts. In reality, the court system has already done this, and this has not resulted in a loss of appreciation of the value of an individual, nor has establishment of a system of sperm or egg donation or surrogate or motherhood. In fact, dignity is related to how we treat the paid donors. We can create a culture of dignity. We know that donors are heroes, and we accept the concept of paid heroes. The final argument is the concern about exploitation of the poor. The core of this argument is that nephrectomy has risks, the poor are more likely to be the compensated donors, and the financial offer will override their better judgment. Well, we've already discussed nephrectomy has, has risks. There's no doubt that the poor would be more likely to be the paid donors, but I would ask you, is this exploitation if the individual makes an autonomous decision after be, being fully informed and receive something they value in return. We don't prevent the poor from taking risks for payment.
the fact that the fundamental judgment will override, their financial offer will override their judgment is of concern also. It's a fundamental tenet of Western philosophy that people should be allowed to control their own destinies. The fact of payment doesn't mean that the donor's choice was not free or voluntary. And there's a difference between a hard choice and an involuntary choice. Being poor doesn't remove the ability to make rational decisions. We don't have a guardian to protect the poor from every decision. Finally, protecting the poor from selling a kidney still leaves them poor and removes one possible option for them to improve their lives. Thus, those who are protecting the poor by prohibiting compensation simply remove one option for the poor to better themselves. Let me conclude with the principles used in Western bioethics today, as proposed by Beauchamp and Childress. Autonomy, beneficence, justice, and non-maleficence. When applied to specific children uh, circumstances, they suggested that these principles often may conflict, and they propose this for donation. I would suggest also for sales. And when they do, they must be balanced against each other. Those in favor of prohibition of compensation make it seem as if they're taking the high moral ground by protecting the possible paid donors or society. In reality, those in favor of prohibition are sentencing some of our transplant candidates to death and others to unnecessary suffering on dialysis. On balance, I would argue that the high moral ground is that saving our patients' lives outweigh the potential harms of a regulated system, or as Bob Dylan has said, how many deaths will it take till too many people have died? In conclusion, unless major changes are made, we, will go, we are going to have a continued organ shortage. This will need to unnecessary death and suffering. A regulated system of compensation can, can move us in the right direction. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Matis. Let's move right on to Dr. Delmonico. Thank you, Sigrid, and I'm delighted to be here. And um, just to give you an idea of who we are and what we're all about, I'm a transplant surgeon since 1971. Arthur and I have been friends all of our lives, so I've all a professional career. And more recently, I've had a role of the Director of Medical Affairs of the Transplantation Society and advisor of the WHO. And I've traveled in the last 18 months around this world to see about markets and know the realities of them and perhaps I can share some of that with you now, uh, today, and I'm happy that we can, because the consequences of what would happen in the United States, for the United States, in having a market of organ sales would not only just be for Americans, it would be profound for the rest of the world. Now, I'm going to depart from uh, some of the remarks that I had organized here to make some responses, and in the time, Sigrid, to what Arthur has uh, uh, talked about, the premise that people are dying on the list as the reason to have markets for organs. Dr. Matus doesn't give you 
a full detailed analysis of the wait list. The first piece to say is that, yes, 6% of the list are dying, but half of the people that are dying on the list are dying in need of deceased donor organs, hearts, livers, lungs, pancreas, intestine, that would not be amenable to a market system. So that's the very first important point to say, that markets will not solve death on the list when you are waiting for a deceased donor organ, number one. Number two, he doesn't tell you about the wait list and data that are very important in this discussion. The percentage of the wait list that is rising is from an older age population, and that is the percentage that is being impacted with death on the list, but in a very important way. The first piece that I'd like to show you is data regarding the list, and I'm going to have to go to that slide, and you'll just have to bear with me, but here is the slide. That slide shows that the list of inactive, that is ineligible for a kidney transplant, has increased substantially in the last five years. It is now more than 30% of the list in a snapshot at the end of each year. I want everyone in this room to know that if you're ineligible, inactive on the list, you don't get an offer for a kidney, whether that kidney is purchased or not. So Dr. Matus' premise that people are dying on the list is undermined by the fact that half of the people that are waiting are waiting for organs that you can't buy, and a sizable percentage of the list is inactive, and it wouldn't matter whether you bought one or not. Those are very important data pieces that Dr. Matus and anyone who's a proponent of a market has to reckon with. The next thing I wish to tell everyone in this room by data is the following. Now, let me just show you this slide. Half of the people who are dying, waiting for a kidney, are indeed dying inactive on the list. Once again, inactive means ineligible. You don't get an offer. You won't know about a kidney, whether it's bought, given, or any otherwise. Why are so many inactive on the list? Now, we can speculate about this. I think we need to find out before we just summarily say people are dying on the list and thus we may have, must have a market system. Dr. Matus suggests that they were all eligible to begin with when they went on the list. That may not be the case because there are some that are placed on the list inactive, remain on the list inactive for more than one year inactive and then die. It may bring to attention the fact that the centers have assessed the patients and concluded that they may not be indeed suitable for transplantation. Otherwise, why should they remain on the list for so long and be inactive and then die inactive? The percentage of patients that are dying inactive are of an older age population. Some other data about the list and what's happening in transplantation if I can just find these slides. Forgive me that I'm going in an extemporaneous way. This is a list, and it shows that 70% of the listings are, in fact, of an older age group. If I can show you here, 
the children and the ages of, of 18 to 34 and uh, 34 to 50, those, the rates, the, the prevalence and incidence of, of renal failure, they haven't changed. What have we done? We've been shifting the resources of our transplants to an older age population that is more susceptible to die soon after having undergone transplantation. And we've been shifting those away from the younger patients who might be solved if we were to address this. Now, the country is going to address it, and it is going to do so by a sensible assessment of the distribution of the organs. Why should we take a 20-year-old kidney and place it into a 70-year-old individual who will only get one or two years of benefit from a transplant, where otherwise that 20-year-old kidney placed into a younger individual, the life years that can be gained as a result of that transplant are enormously greater. <laughs> and so this concept of life years of transplantation is coming for renal kidney allocation in the country. And it takes into account two considerations that are very important. Giving priority to candidates with longer expected post-transplant survival and giving priority to candidates with shorter predicted wasteless survival. When Dr. Maida says that we've not done much in terms of increasing the number of organs in this country, that's simply not true. We had 4,000 donors in, two th in, in 1990. In 2002, we had 6,000 donors. In 2007, we have 8,000 donors. That's deceased donors. In four years, we've done it what took us 12 years to do. Why is that? Because every hospital now has a mandate to refer every imminent death to the organ bank for referral and identity of possible organ donors. We've had a 25% increase in deceased organ donors in this country in the last four years. The next contention that I'd like to deal with in, in terms of when Dr. Maida says that it's unethical to permit people to die, and if we had kidney sales, we would affect that, Arthur makes a presumption that we will have the same deceased altruistic donation in this country if we have a market. That's not the experience in the rest of the world. In Israel, right now, they're outsourcing kidneys kidney transplantation and liver transplantation to Colombia and to the Philippines. Now, I'm, I don't know how much time I have, Sigrid, but I... I no, you're fine. I want to start to take people now back into what I might have done as an introduction. But uh, to, let me just say this, and, and I have this highlighted in, in the uh, remarks. To say it's unethical not to permit kidney sales because kidney patients are dying on the list overlooks the unethical development of committing heart, lung, liver, pancreas, and intestine patients to die because kidney sales will substantially reduce the number of deceased organ, uh, organs available for transplantation. The effect of the market is going to have more people die awaiting for those organs as a result of altruism in this country being impacted by that market. In the Philippines, no one gives because you sell your kidney. In Hong Kong, when you've had the opportunity to buy a kidney in the mainland of China, no one gives. Israel is wrestling so desperately right now with its 
programs of transplantation because no one gives when you can buy a kidney in Manila. Deceased donation is impacted when you can go to Colombia and buy a liver. The thought that a kidney market will not have an impact on deceased donation in a country is simply misguided. It's not the reality of what has happened in the rest of the world. Now, this country and the entire global transplantation experience is in the throes of one huge dilemma, one problem, and that is this administrative order of the Philippines. This is a draft that we have at the WHO from December 3rd, 2007. This order will enable patients from all over the world to come to Manila to buy kidneys. Dr. Maditz would say, well, this isn't what we ought to be doing because it's not a regulated market. And we are repulsed by the sight of these poor people from the slums of Manila being the targeted source of the donors. From the administrative order, Filipino governmental position, their view will be this is a regulated market. They'll want to try and fix the price. They'll want to try and have a transparency of practice. They'll want to say that there can be follow-up for these donors. But the reality of that everywhere else in the world is not the case. Competitive markets yield competitive prices. It naturally brings brokers into the equation. That is the experience currently in the Philippines as having brokers that are attracting with very glitzy internet sites people from all over the world to come to Manila to buy a kidney. What we all overlook when we say that recipients are dying is what is the consequence for the donor? What indeed is the consequence for this individual? There is no follow-up. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Dr. Matus does not want to have follow-up for these individuals, not at all. But I'm suggesting that if we place markets into the realm of reality in one country, we can expect a global competition for individuals to come to that country to buy and sell organs. That is the reality that we're now contending with. And the Philippines wants Americans and Saudis and Israelis and Egyptians and Japanese, etc., all to come to Manila to buy these organs. It is the social status of this individual as a targeted group. When Arthur says it's not the monetary interest alone that's a problem, I can accept that. But what is the problem of this from a global perspective is shall we have a source of people because they're poor be targeted to be a donor source for all of us in the world? Are these poor of the slums of Manila to be that patient population that with this administrative order and a, quote, regulated market, anybody in the world can come and buy that organ? This administrative order cites references from Dr. Matus and Dr. Hippen and Abdul Dar and others who are proponents of regulated markets to support what will be this system. I'm not suggesting that they concur with that, 
but I'm suggesting that it gets very blurred in terms of what one country might think is a regulated mar market and what might be another. The WHO gets its marching orders from the World Health Assembly. And I want to make it very clear that the World Health Assembly, as recently as 2004, urged member states to take measures to protect the poorest and vulnerable groups from transplant tourism and the sale of tissues and organs, including attention to the wider problem of international trafficking in human tissues and organs. What repulses us about this is that a patient population, the poor, would be the targeted ones. Now, this notion about autonomy is something I'd also like to bring to attention. And that is, here's Janet Radcliffe Riches in Munich telling us why can, who it is for us to deny this freedom. Here's an internet blog, if I can just read this, from a Filipino just put last week. In a description of the Philippines, standing to gain a lot of money doing kidney transplants under the guise of medical tourism. Urging guidelines to protect Filipinos. According to the National Kidney Transplant Institute, that is of the Philippines, there are about 3,000 to 5,000 registered kidney transplants a year. Most of the recipients are Japanese, etc., that we've talked about. Notice that they say naive Americans, mainly of libertarian persuasion, say, well, why not? The rich guy gets a new lease on life with a new kidney, and the poor guy gets a bundle of money to help his family. End of story. Is that the end of story? Why don't we help them, benefit them by giving them some money by tar targeting this poor? Well, then that's not the end of the story, but of course. There are now several social, scientific studies by the WHO revealing the consequences of what happens to these individuals. In summary, the research shows that the motivation being for the paid kidney donate is poverty, that the lasting economic benefit after donation is limited or even negative because of the limited employability of such patients and the perceived deterioration of their health. That poor person in Manila is not the same as the altruistic donor that comes forward in terms of their overall well-being. It's not the same patient population. It's not the same patient population as the college girls selling their eggs. No one's going to Manila to buy eggs. It's the Princeton, it's the college girl who is physically healthy, et cetera, et cetera, that becomes in that market. But this is a different market, different patient population who's not necessarily well to begin with and being used as a targeted source. If we have a market that is regulated in this country, what is to prevent that Filipino from being sent someplace else, for example, to the United States, or to have immigrants come to the United States under those circumstances to sell their kidney because they can get a lot more money in the United States than they might in the Philippines? And Dr. Maditz will say, no, we'll, we'll regulate that. We'll prohibit that. We'll police that. I shall say to you that that's a very problematic thing to enforce 
And his plan in terms of the police enforcement of all of that is problematic as well. But irrespective of the police, the problem is once you have a regulated market, as he talks about, once you have any market, you now have to think about the donor source. And once you say it's okay to target the poor population of the Philippines or the United States or India or Pakistan or Iran or any place in the world, now you set into motion that is our targeted group. We will now use them as our source of organs. That is what's repugnant to everyone here in this room. That's what the WHO, the European Commission, the Institute of Medicine, the Transplantation Society, I can give you a list of them that are repelled by this. And yes, it may be that Congress can have another look at this. And Congress may or may not always make the right decisions. But I'm going to suggest to you that it will be a tall order to muster overturning the, the current national organ transplant act because of this, these forces from the international community that will not want to see America develop what is going on in the Philippines, a regulated market. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Delmonico, and now we'll hear from Dr. Hippen. <laughs> I think I'm too easy for you. Oh, well, now you stick to the truth, too. No Thank you. I'd like to begin by thanking the Cato Institute and especially uh, Sigrid Freibavir for extending the opportunity to participate in this forum and to offer some reflections on what lessons might be learned from the 20-year history of legalized organ vending in Iran. And I should emphasize that the title of this paper should be taken literally. What you're going to hear today is not a defense of the living kidney vendor program in Iran, but what lessons can be learned from what's been reported in peer-reviewed journals from a number of different transplant centers in Iran. Along these lines, these empirically grounded observations I'll offer you today are only as good as the data which support them. Hence, you'll find a litany of citations undergirding the generalizations I'll be offering. And with that, I'd like to begin by explaining how the Iranian system works. Kidney transplantation in Iran was in its infancy until the mid-1980s. Between 1967 and 1985, only about 100 kidney transplants were undertaken in Iran. Prior to the institution of an organ vendor market, Iran had previously paid uh, for recipients with available living donors to travel to Europe for transplantation. Complicating matters was an exodus of transplant professionals from Iran after the 1979 revolution. In response to a growing population of patients with kidney failure and concomitantly a growing, number of, uh, a growing number of people on the waiting list for organ transplants, an organ vendor market was legalized in 1988. By 1999, Iranian transplant professionals in multiple transplant centers reported the elimination of waiting lists for transplantation. So how does that system work? Once potential kidney transplant recipients are identified, they're evaluated by kidney transplant teams and nephrologists and a surgeon. Recipients are counseled that it's in their best interest to identify a biologically related living donor. In the event that no biologically related living donor is available or willing to donate, the recipients then referred to a patient-run charity, such as the Dialysis and Transplant Patients Association, or DATPA. From there, the disposition of these recipients depend on whether or not the transplant center has an active deceased donor program. For example, at Shiraz University Hospital in Shiraz, Iran, uh, which has an active deceased donor program, recipients are referred to DATPA and are generally required to wait six months for a deceased donor kidney before being referred back. 
Some recipients do actually elect to circumvent this requirement by going to other transplant centers. And if the recipient doesn't receive a transplant from a deceased donor after six months, then DATPA identifies an immunologically compatible kidney vendor for the recipient. DATPA and these other charities are staffed by volunteers with kidney failure and with transplants and receives no remuneration for matching kidney vendors with recipients. Neither the transplant center nor transplant physicians are involved in identifying potential vendors. Instead, vendors express their own interest in participating by contacting DATPA, and once identified, vendors are referred to the transplant center and evaluated according to the same standards applied to living donors who are not financially compensated, including the right of the evaluating physician to veto a vendor's candidacy for medical or surgical contraindications. Vendors are then paid in two ways. First, the Iranian government provides a fixed compensation to the vendor of approximately $1,200 U.S., and limited health care insurance co coverage, which currently only extends to one year after the exchange and only covers conditions related to the surgery. Second, the vendor receives separate payment either from the recipient's family or if the recipient is impoverished from one of a series of designated charitable organizations. And this amount usually is between $2,300 and $4,500 U.S. The amount and source of the second remuneration is arranged beforehand by this charitable organization. It's important to note that non-citizens of Iran are not eligible for participating in the organ, Iranian organ procurement system, either as vendors or recipients. And the Iranian government also assumes the cost both of dialysis and transplantation for its citizens, including procurement, the cost of the surgery, the immunosuppression, and the post-operative care of the vendor and the recipient. This is how the Iranians have found the way to solve their organ shortage. And although their system is not without significant problems, it has a clear advantage over other procurement systems, primarily that thousands in need don't die for want of, a, for want of an available donor. So let's just talk about some, some uh, generally some salient merits of the Iranian system. First, the separation of roles between patient-run charitable organizations and transplant centers permits transplant professionals to focus on their central salient moral obligation, which is assessing the medical and surgical suitability of potential organ vendors. Patient-run charities trade on the moral commitments of patients to other, help others in a position similar to their own without any financial incentive to recruit high-risk organ vendors. Together, this combination couldn't be more, difficult, more different than the typical model of transplant tourism, where the incentive for organ brokers is to cut corners and deceive all, all parties in order to make the sale. Well, what about outcomes? The recipient outcomes from organs procured through underground organ trafficking are notoriously poor, as Dr. Delmonico's pointed out. Each of us who practice could relate more than one horror story, and these anecdotes properly have a captivating effect on the moral imagination. But the Iranian experience demonstrates that there's no necessary link between the purchase of an organ and poor recipient outcomes. A robust measure of this is 10-year recipient outcomes. That is, 10 years after a transplant, how many kidney transplants are still functioning? And for reference, in the United States, the 10-year transplant survival from 1995 to 2005 was 54%. In Iran, the transplant survival for, kidneys from, uh, for, for recipients of kidneys from living donors is 53%, and for recipients of kidneys from living vendors is 44%, a difference that does not turn out to reach statistical significance. Now... While that difference doesn't reach statistical significance, it does highlight a feature about organ vendors of moral significance. Organ vendors in Iran are disproportionately impoverished. At least one study reports that more than 70% of vendors meet the Iranian definition of poverty, which is subsistence at less than $5 U.S. per month. There's data from the United States and some developing countries which link low socioeconomic status with subclinical kidney disease, which might actually go far to explain 
the modest difference in long-term outcomes for recipients of kidneys from living vendors. But what's conspicuously absent from these reports are the kinds of apocalyptic, infectious, and surgical complications which are seemingly commonplace in reports on organ trafficking. Obviously, the impoverishment of organ vendors as a class raises other concerns, which I'll come back to. Now, it's often argued, including by my friend Dr. Delmonico, that the institution of deceased donor programs uh, is suppressed in countries where organ vending flourishes, and that should make sense. Compared to organ vending, deceased donor programs have considerably higher opportunity costs. One needs organ procurement personnel, multidisciplinary collaboration on protocols to correctly identify candidates for deceased donation, operating room space, ra rapid tissue and serologic testing, all within a compressed time frame of about 24 hours. All this assumes that the more protean concerns, such as successfully navigating a plurality of competing cultural attitudes toward brain death as death, or the permissibility of procuring organs from the dead in the first place, issues of surrogate consent, are already adequately addressed and understood. However, in Iran, deceased donation was less hampered by these opportunity costs than by the fact that it was not until the year 2000 that brain death as death was legislatively recognized by the Iranian parliament. And since 2000, and despite a concomitant flourishing organ vendor market, the number of organs from deceased donors has increased tenfold, from 26 kidneys procured in 2000 to 243 kidneys procured in 2006, which comprised 15% of all organs procured in Iran that year. It is also not the case that organ vending precludes living organ donation. While it's possible that organ vending may have delayed the legal steps required for deceased organ donation in Iran, living-related organ donation has always coexisted with organ vending since the inception of the vendor program and quite consistently has comprised 10 to 12 percent of all organ transplants annually in Iran. In short, organ vending in Iran does not preclude altruistic donation correctly understood in either life or after death. And finally, the system of organ vending in Iran has made organ trafficking in Iran rare by rendering it unnecessary. Despite these successes, however, the Iranian system is not without problems. Indeed, Iranian transplant professionals themselves have been forthcoming in print and in correspondence in identifying these problems. The central, the morally crucial problem with the Iranian system is the absence of long-term comprehensive follow-up of individuals, individuals who sold a kidney. Outcomes data on the physiologic and socioeconomic outcomes of organ vendors are typically limited to reports from individual institutions, and that verdict is mixed. Sure. Understood in the context of a litany of reports of adverse outcomes for vendors and recipients alike in the international underground practice of organ trafficking, ambiguity on the issue of what happens to organ vendors in the long term is morally unacceptable. It should be noted that many Iranian transplant professionals agree and are seeking programmatic changes to their system to address this issue. So what lessons can be gleaned from the Iranian system of organ vending? First, organ vending affords the opportunity to procure more organs from all sources. The track record of the Iranian system offers assurance that an altruistic system of organ donation from living donors and deceased donors can readily coexist alongside an organ vendor system. Indeed, as Virginia Postrel has had occasion to observe, it's simply morally obtuse for people to declare that they will not become organ donors because of opposition to organ vending, since that harm is simply visited on otherwise innocent third-party recipients. For those opposed to organ vending, one, one more organ donated is one less organ which needs to be purchased. Furthermore, recipients with moral objections to receiving an organ purchased from a vendor need not pay for that moral commitment with their lives. 
Instead, those recipients can request only receiving an organ from a donor, and donors who plan on donating at death can stipulate that their organs may be procured only if they're not subsequently sold. Good outcomes for vendors have both moral value and market value. I've argued that ambiguity regarding the outcomes for organ vendors is morally unacceptable, and the burden of assuring safe practices falls squarely on transplant professionals and policymakers. This obligation to assure safe practices can be traced to the general obligation of a physician to avoid doing harm to patients. For both donors and vendors alike, providing a clear and evidence-based understanding of the long-term risks of exchanging a kidney are paramount for achieving authentically informed consent. This can be readily accomplished by offering comprehensive lifelong health insurance to every organ vendor, which in turn can be the vehicle for a donor registry. The vast cost savings of transplantation compared to dialysis, as well as the low overhead costs of ensuring a cohort of explicitly cherry-picked, low-risk organ vendors makes this approach a more fiscally responsible use of taxpayer dollars. Kidney vendors with undetected pre-existing kidney disease or risk factors for the same are much more likely to incur higher health care expenses. In a system which selects organ vendors, those individuals least likely to develop short and long-term complications is, by extension, most likely to maximally reduce overall health care expenditures. If that entails excluding the poor from opportunities from organ vending, so be it. An organ vendor market does not purport to be the solution to poverty or to the plight of the uninsured, it is only a solution to the shortage of organs. The non-interference right to sell a kidney does not, all by itself, imply an obligation to buy. Three, the harm so prevalent in underground organ trafficking can be avoided by a clear separation of responsibilities. Physicians and transplant professionals should be able to focus on the medical, surgical, and psychological suitability of donors and vendors, not the recruitment of vendors. And likewise, organizations responsible for vendor recruitment should not be involved in making final determinations on the suitability of vendors and should not be incentivized to cut corners. It's worth lingering for a moment on why this discussion should matter to those of us in the United States. In our country, there is a present and growing disparity between the demand for and supply of transplantable organs. And in 2006, some 4,000 of our fellow citizens died on the list waiting for a kidney. And from 1999 to 2006, some 30,000 potential recipients died waiting. Only 20% of all patients with kidney failure in this country are listed for transplantation, and only 4 to 5% of all patients with kidney failure in this country are transplanted on an annual basis. And our federal government spent some $21 billion on kidney failure in 2005, of which $2 billion went to transplantation. Some 6% of the entire Medicare budget went to 0.6% of all Medicare beneficiaries. And for this, this is for a therapy, maintenance dialysis, in which the five-year survival is 35%, whereas the five-year survival for recipients of a transplant is 75%. Successful transplantation improves quality of life, quantity of life, and at a fraction of the cost of maintenance dialysis. And the lessons to be learned from the Iranian system are toward the end of reducing the suffering here and around the world inflicted by the cruel contradictions, perverse incentives, and manifest failures of the current system. A parting thought. Three years ago, Dr. Matus, Dr. Delmonico, and I had the privilege of listening to Dr. Ibrahim Ribzi address the World Transplant Congress in Boston. Dr. Ribzi, the father of nephrology and transplantation in Pakistan, and a well-known outspoken opponent of organ trafficking, pleaded with the attendees, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, please, 
Please convince your patients to stop coming to Pakistan and buying kidneys from the most destitute of my fellow citizens. Do what you must. Increase organ procurement from deceased donors, institute a system of presumed consent, whatever. But please, what is happening in my country is also your responsibility. And on that point, Dr. Ribsey is correct. What is happening to his brethren is very much a part of my moral responsibility as a transplant physician, which is why I support a regulated market in organs in the United States. You see, the disparity between the demand for and supply of organs in countries such as the U.S. has wrought a flourishing underground international network of organ trafficking. Dr. Delmonico's organization, the WHO, has recently estimated that some 15,000 transplants around the world, some 10% of all organs transplanted in the world on an annual basis occur through organ trafficking. Why? Because for those without an available living donor, the waiting times for organs in countries such as the United States and Canada now frequently exceed the median lifespan of those on the waiting list. It is the recipients of means in developed countries who travel to places such as Pakistan and the Philippines to purchase organs from those living in debt peonage, which provides the core economic support for organ trafficking. There is no press conference, there's no position statement, there's no debating point which alters this brute fact about the legacy of failure of our current system. In response to that failure, people are voting with their feet, whether it is by soliciting organ donors on the Internet or by engaging in organ trafficking. Ladies and gentlemen, the current and existing failures in developed countries to effectively address the organ shortage has resulted in a terrible moral complicity with organ trafficking. The challenge at hand is this. Will organized transplantation hold transplant recipients around the world hostage by inaction, ineffective half measures, or empty platitudes? And should cynicism regarding the political will of our elected officials to exhibit a modicum of courage in overturning the National Organ Transplant Act or fears of bad press or some other such thing serve as a legitimate excuse for not striving to change a policy that continues to engender needless suffering and death here and abroad? Or as I hope, shall we finally arrive at the recognition that the theoretical concerns about organ markets are defeasible and that the alleged costs of an organ market to human flourishing ought to be understood in the context of the conspicuous costs in persistent human suffering, needlessly lost human life, and squandered public treasure of more of the same? Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hippen. And now we will hear from Sam Crow, who is a um, senior analyst on the President's Council in Bioethics. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I have to say at the outset that everything I say here are my own thoughts and don't represent the President's Council in Bioethics in any way. After hearing these three presentations, it should be pretty obvious that this is a complicated debate with many arguments on both sides of the issue. I'm going to try to step back a bit and provide you with a summary of the main points of the theoretical aspects of this, of this issue. Basically, I'm going to try to lay out as clearly as possible a few things every person needs to know in order to weigh in on kidney markets. I'm going to give you the 30,000 feet perspective meaning I'll focus on the moral strengths and weaknesses of creating a market in kidneys and not on those of specific market proposals. 
So I'll first describe the current kidney shortage and explain why it will only get worse. I'll then make a quick case for why one might support a market in kidneys, mainly to draw out the precepts underlying the general position. And I'll end by doing what I was really brought here to do. I'll describe what I think are the four most important dangers of organ vending and explain why these dangers should cause us to be concerned about market proposals. So, our current situation. As of this morning, there were about 98,000 Americans on the OPTN transplant waiting list. Patients needing kidneys make up the largest group, accounting for roughly two-thirds of that list. By most projections, their numbers are likely to increase significantly in the next few decades. As Dr. Neil Poe of of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health explained to the council during its June 2006 meeting, we are seeing only the proverbial tip of the iceberg of chronic kidney disease. To begin with, those Americans who currently suffer from kidney failure make up only a very small percentage of those who have chronic kidney disease. And the large numbers of Americans with chronic kidney disease who are today creeping towards kidney failure are only a part of the picture. During the next few decades, the baby boomers will become elderly and thus more susceptible to kidney failure. Public health experts are predicting a surge in diabetes, which is one of the main causes of kidney disease. And American minority populations, which tend to have higher rates of kidney disease than whites, are expected to increase substantially. If Dr. Poe's analysis is correct, America is on the verge of a massive increase in the demand for transplantable kidneys. Some folks think that a kidney market would help address this growing problem. More than likely, such a market would generate substantial increases in organ supply, and thus would help more people receive the transplant they so desperately need. Even those who are only suffering and not currently dying from kidney disease would benefit from a market. More available organs would mean that these people could receive a transplant much sooner than they would under the current system. A market in kidneys would in effect, improve the health of many sick Americans. A kidney market also would expand the scope of human freedom. Advocates argue that free choice should dictate the provision of organs, that those individuals who believe selling a kidney could improve the quality of their life should be permitted to to do so, and that it is condescending and paternalistic to protect people from the rational choices they might make for themselves, including the decision to sell parts of their bodies. In sum... The government should not dictate morals in a pluralistic society, but should rather allow each individual to determine for him or herself what is right as long as these decisions do not harm others. At first glance, it seems that the strengths of the market proposal give its proponents the moral high ground of the debate. By appealing to two goods Americans rightly hold dear, health and freedom, advocates make a powerful case for the benefits a market would offer the nation and its citizens. The moral superiority of the market position seems strongest when framing the question from the perspective of a shortage in organs. As one broadens this context and includes other goods, particularly the importance of upholding the dignity of human embodiment and the importance of having a society that treats all human beings as ends and not as means to an end, this moral superiority becomes much less obvious. Consider these four arguments. Number one. A kidney market would take advantage of the vulnerability of the poor and the young. Monetary incentives would exploit the healthy poor who might feel pressure to sell because of their dire need. To defenders of organ markets, the freedom to sell organs extends opportunity to the poor 
who stand to benefit the most from this new freedom and expanded ownership over their bodies. Yet, in a wealthy society like our own, we do not really benefit the poor by encouraging them to believe that the one way to make money, that one way to make money is to sell their body parts. That is to sell this strange kind of asset that requires no work, no skills, and no real possibility for long-term self-improvement. In fact, we consign the poor to hopelessness if the only hope we extend them is the one-time sale of a kidney. Middle-class young adults might face a similar predicament. High school and college graduates who long for financial stability might be tempted by such a seemingly easy source of income or consider the temptation of a recent law school or business school graduate uh, who might face uh, the uh, might face when confronting the daunting task of paying off steep graduate uh, school loans. With current medical knowledge demonstrating that kidney removal has minimal risk, these young professionals might be enticed to undergo the relatively simple medical procedure in order to reduce their debt. In such circumstances, the young, like the poor, might begin to think of their bodies as part of their net worth. Perhaps the greatest danger to both the poor and the young, though, is if society begins to think of their bodies as part of their net worth. External pressure might develop, pushing the young and the poor to sell their organs in order to prosper or simply to get by. This pressure, in theory, could be extreme, with the young having to count their organs as part of their net worth when applying for a loan, for school, or for a house, and with the sellable body parts of the poor being included in a welfare means test calculation. The federal and state governments could pass laws forbidding such practices, but a defense of such laws would be difficult, if not impossible, to make once our society begins thinking of human bodies as personal property. Number two. A market in organs would harm intergenerational re- uh, relations. As medicine continues to advance and treatment of serious illness becomes better, more and more Americans will be living longer. Of course, it's a good thing, right? This kind of progress is, of course, a great boon. But when progress in medicine usually comes, new medical hurdles, new illnesses that physicians must contend with on a regular basis that they saw less frequently in the past, one of these conditions likely will be organ failure. As more and more Americans live longer, they will eventually reach a point when their organs simply stop functioning properly. A kidney market might help address this looming problem, but at a strange cost. Given that the young have the healthiest organs and commonly do not have much money, they would likely be the largest group of sellers. The young, in effect, would become the source of raw material to perpetuate the lives of the old. While the young do not have the responsibility of caring for their elders, While the young do have the responsibility of caring for their elders, this responsibility should not extend to routinely sacrificing parts of their bodies for them. Number three, as the preceding two arguments suggest, a market in organs would commodify human bodies. Kidney selling would invite us to see the body as a mere thing, like any other commodity or natural resource. Markets wouldn't work efficiently by making things generic and therefore interchangeable. The price system is effective because it can put a value on anything with little regard for what it is. In many cases, this reduction of things to comparable quantities is desirable, primarily because it allows different commodities to be traded, and thus allows a multitude of different producers and consumers to obtain what they need and exchange the valuable things they wish to sell. 
But in some cases, the market's blindness to what kind of thing is being bought and sold is morally troubling. For instance, as most societies have learned, human beings are not commodities and should not be sold or traded. Human beings are a unique kind of thing with a special moral worth that puts them outside of what is reasonably sellable. But parts of human beings are, of course, somewhat different from whole human beings. I'm not my kidney, my cornea, or my blood plasma. These things are, of course, only a part of me. That said, I'll certainly notice their removal because my bodily integrity will have been disturbed. This violation is justifiable when the removal of a body part is necessary to save the whole, but it cannot be justified when the removal of the body part occurs in order to procure a commodity. When this happens, it debases the value of human beings because it, in effect, treats the person who really is inseparable from his or her body as a collection of parts a particular monetary value instead of an integrated whole with an inalienable moral worth. Selling body parts, like selling whole bodies, would degrade us and our society. Number four, a market in organs would further confuse the proper end or goal of medicine, which is to maintain or improve human health. Transplantation therapy more generally presents a fundamental challenge for the healing profession. It offers dramatic relief from suffering and even wards off death, but at the risk of pain and sacrifice for those involved. Healthcare professionals are familiar, of course, with asking patients and their families to take risks, endure pain, and make sacrifices. But apart from organ transplantation, this request is made with the health of the patient as the primary goal. This uniqueness of organ transplantation is the reason that the medical community was, in the early years of the procedure, anxious to stop using living donors. Cutting into a healthy body in order to remove a healthy part is a disquieting practice, and those who were the most sensitive to the proper end of medicine rightly worried if this practice could ever be justifiable using medical expertise. The view that largely prevailed, I think rightly so, is that it could, but only because of the emotional closeness of a giver of the organ to the recipient. This closeness, driven by the giver's generosity and sacrifice, helped justifies the physician's act of harming the healthy. To allow the use of cash payments or other such incentives to entice donors would add an extra, more serious moral burden to this already tenuous situation, making procurement of organs from the living finally unacceptable because it would, in effect, undercut or at least confuse the impulse of generosity that makes living donation in its current form morally permissible. If selling kidneys were permitted, the moral compass of medicine would be lost, and physicians might become no different than mere technicians who provide a service in response to even the most outrageous desires of patients. Here are the four questions we're left with. First, do we wish to live in a society where the poor are tacitly encouraged in their desperation to sell parts of themselves, or in which young people see their bodies as part of their net worth. Second, do we wish to live in a society in which the old pay the young to be their source of replacement organs, thereby making some of the young more vulnerable to organ failure later in life? Third, do we wish to live in a society in which the human body is regarded as commercial property, in which body parts are bought and sold? And finally, do we wish to live in a society where physicians are indistinguishable from other technical service providers who simply provide a service tailored to meet 
even the most shocking demands from patients who think of themselves instead as consumers. To allow such commodification of human bodies and human relationships is not only going to turn generosity into trade and gratitude into compensation, it will also treat the most delicate and profound aspects of our humanity as if everything of human worth were reducible to price, to a price. To turn these aspects of our lives into commodities is too high of a cost for the benefit that would be gained from a market in human kidneys. Thank you. I'd like to thank all our panelists. I think you have been very lucky to hear some of, I think all actually, of the most uh, uh, cogent arguments on both sides tonight or this afternoon. So I'd like to open it up um, to questions. Do we have a microphone? We have a question down here. Thank you. I, I thought this was one of the best presentations I've ever I've been. I come to these things all the time. Uh, I had not thought much about the issue before coming here. Maybe that gives me, maybe, maybe. Oh, I'm not talking into the phone. Okay. Um, my, my question is, uh, I noticed that Dr. Mattis, is that how you pronounce her name? Uh, uh, quickly, very quickly went over uh, the the parallel professions where people risk their life and we pay them football players, calling uh, into coal mines and uh, people. But the one I like best is a, a boxer because all he's providing is entertainment and he's clearly risking uh, very serious damage to him. And I don't think uh, my, my uh, point is from a libertarian kind of perspective uh, putting aside all these statistics about the effectiveness and of the, of the procedure and the dangers to the person, assuming that the person is adequately informed, doesn't this still boil down to the individual having the right to do these things? If, we have, if he has a right to play football, if he has a right to engage in all these professions where there's a lot less at stake, there's a, there's so much less uh, one's, uh, you know the entertainment of the of the population is hardly uh, an important benefit. And here, what you're talking about is somebody's the, the real quality of their life, and maybe even maybe even their uh, uh, whether they're going to die or not. And I was amazed one that you didn't you just passed over that very very quickly, um, and. The other side, the the other part of this, I'm ending my question. Uh, the other part of it is, a lot of the responses, which are you know, we don't want to live in this society that 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 has this kind of selling of organs. I mean, obviously, there's a religious uh, underlying there that nobody wanted to touch, and I, you know, that to me comes down again. Everybody has their own value system. And why do you feel, Dr. Delmonico, that, uh, that it's your role to decide what other people's morals are? I actually think it's – I'm kind of, kind of squeamish about this whole idea of, of, of people selling. But on the other hand, I say I may not do it. I may not purchase or buy. But 
I'm willing to to let other people, if at least they're informed, to make their own decision. Sorry, Mike. Okay, no, that's, that's fine. Um, let's let Dr. Beta start. A, a very, Monaco and anyone else who may wish. Very quick comment, and, and that is I have an, a bit of an advantage here in that you have the policy analysis that I wrote uh, to go through at your leisure. And, and pick up some of these details, and obviously uh, we only had uh, 15 minutes to present. But you're absolutely right. We let uh, the poor uh, take all sorts of risk for money that, uh, that the rich wouldn't take. We let the poor and the rich take all sorts of risks, such as hand gliding, mountain climbing, smoking, uh, which are riskier than uh, than being a donor. And so in, in that sense, I, I totally agree with you. Most religions, in fact, obviously favor organ donation, and most religions as their basis have uh, have the health of the community at, at their heart and, and, and caring of another person. So uh, one could make an argument that there could be religious support, although certainly, as, as Dr. Delmonico, I'm sure, will tell you, the Pope has come out against, uh, the former Pope has come out against against uh, payment for donation, but using the same dignity argument that uh, that you heard earlier. But but I certainly support what you said, that we ought to let people decide for themselves. I think, people, I think you got the wrong idea about, about what I said about religion. With religion, the fact that, it, that it, people have a religious It's not a matter about my morals. It has nothing to do with my morals at all. It's the consequences of what regulated markets will do upon the wait list and upon patients undergoing transplantation in this country and around the world. It's not, that's why I didn't inject dignity of the human person, anyone's morals, any religious factors. It's a very practical issue that we all are going to have to face. If you're concerned about patients dying on the list and you have markets, you won't have deceased donors. That's what the reality is in the rest of the world. That's not a matter of my morals at all. That is a reality of the experience. So your argument is practical. Excuse me, let's let... Indeed, um, in, in part. Adam, would you like to respond to the dignity argument? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, this probably is an audience that really cares about the concept so much. So the, 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 the thing with dignity is it isn't necessarily, as Dr. Matus was sort of insinuating, founded solely on a religious basis. I mean, there are other sort of foundations, nature, philosophy, uh, in addition to maybe reveal religion, depending on where you stand on these kinds of issues. But the whole point is not necessarily the reason we want to sort of outlaw markets in this particular way is is not that um, the commodification argument is the one that we need to really focus on i think here and it's not the worry about the individual in particular i mean this is kind of a strange thing as soon as we start thinking of our bodies as property like this thing is me this thing is me this is mine i own it it has this particular value it's a little strange because it has this kind of dichotomy it's as if Sam is sort of outside his body looking back and saying, I own this thing, and I can take it out and give it to you, and now it's yours. This is sort of a misconception of what it means to be an embodied human being. That's a philosophical argument. It doesn't have to go into law. I mean, it probably will never. Uh, the dignity kind of question that, that falls from that doesn't have to go into law. The real issue is as soon as the individual begins thinking of him or herself as a thing that has particular kind of net worth, 
you know, all these parts add up to $100,000, I can, you know. That is a, a problem only when society, finally when society begins thinking in those terms. I mean, I may have, may have been exaggerating a little bit as far as like this, you know, uh, welfare means test calculation or something with the poor. But the point is, is that when society, when we as a whole begin thinking of each other as something that has particular kind of va- monetary value, that's when it becomes dangerous because uh, there are certain populations that are more vulnerable than others, and we need to protect them. This isn't the poor don't have brains and can't think for themselves. It's just that they're vulnerable in some way, maybe just like children, maybe just like you know the elderly, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Ben, did you want to say something? Just a brief point. One, it's worth wondering whether uh, dignity, human dignity, presupposes human freedom. Freedom, after all, is the freedom to choose rightly and to choose wrongly. And the freedom that we're talking about, I mean, obviously, people who choose to sell their kidney in a regulated market could do it for morally salutary reasons or morally reprehensible reasons. The right to do so doesn't entail one or the other. And I think the idea that somehow a person who chooses to sell their kidney in this fashion uh, is suddenly relegated to a bag of spare parts is a simple failure of moral imagination. It's just phenomenologically inaccurate. People are not their kidneys. People are not their body parts. People are embodied moral choosers. And one of the things that a market does in a society, in a world indeed, marked by an intractable moral pluralism, where we disagree fundamentally about the nature of the right and the good, is that the marketplace allows us to come together on small, localized points of agreement without killing each other. That's what markets do. That's what markets do here. It allows dignified human beings, free choosers, to come together in a locus, in a way that preserves their dignity by preserves their freedom to act. That's all. Okay, we had one question down here. Can we get a mic to this gentleman, please? He's been waiting for a little while. I'm Raghuveer Goyal from India Globe in Asia today. It was a great presentation and educational. My question is that I'm sure you're aware of the racket, uh, kidney racket, or st- doctors were stealing kidneys from the patients in India. Uh, they would bring them from the streets, poor people, or they would come only for flu or headache. Do you have any idea why this was happening, and is it this demand and supply, or uh, what we talk here today, that uh, maybe those kidneys are coming... Uh, outside India or outsourcing? And what can be done as far as this, uh, how can you protect as far as who uh, WHO is concerned or the international law? Are you, are you asking Dr. Delmonico in particular or anyone who would care to answer? Well, uh, India has had, there, just recently in Gorgon, India, there's been a revelation about uh, kidneys uh, that have been uh, taken from individuals, um, uh, in fact, against their will. None of us are going to condone that. Um, and that's not the kind of market situation that any of the panelists here have been contending with. That's um, clearly an illegal act, and uh, I think we'll just have to leave it there. Uh, Just a quick point. Um, One facet of that story is that uh, the gentleman in question who's now in custody fled to Canada, and there's a reason he fled to Canada, because it is Canadian recipients... Uh, where the waiting time for organs is even worse than the United States, that was providing him a great deal of business. 
See, ladies and gentlemen, it is the failure of the current system that perpetuates organ trafficking. It is the desperation of recipients and as I'm a consequence a of failed, failed policies in this country yeah. that is driving this process. Well, the problem with the Canadian system is that they don't have any organized deceased donation that goes from one province to another. In fact, one province doesn't talk to another. And in part, now what's happening with the Canadian system is they know that they can go and buy a kidney in Manila and in the Philippines, and that's impacting their de deceased donation as well. Yeah, so well, let's not mistake that. Sam, did you want to add something? Yeah, very quick. Uh, two things. First, yeah, of course, we're dignified human beings. That means we're also free. But we have to remember that there's more to America than just markets. There's some sort of common sort of yeah, civil society that we're trying to create, so we have certain boundaries. And one of the boundaries that we're trying not to break in this particular instance is, is the selling of, of human organs. Now, as far as India's situation, I mean, Dr. Ippen, Dr. May been saying, oh, look, you know, all this, we got all this bad stuff going on in the world, this unregulated market business. People are going to different countries, blah, 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 to get their kidneys. We need to be thinking, well, what are the kinds of parallel situations do we have in America? I mean, seeing, they're saying if we allow a market in America, this stuff won't happen as often or anymore. Is this the case? Yeah. Well, this might sound crass, but the same could be said for child pornography. The same could be said for the sex slave trade. I mean, these are kinds of things that we outlaw because we're going to have a civil society. And I'm trying to provoke him, so he'll, he'll okay. respond. I, I, well done. I, I, I'm, pro, I'm now provoked. Um, you got me. Listen, we can't. You, you can't take these things and, and throw these horror stories out and say that this has anything to do with what we're being proposed. I've been listening to Manila, to India, to, to Pakistan. This has got nothing to do with what we're proposing today. Child pornography has nothing to do with what we're proposing today. We're proposing a situation to solve a terrible problem for our patients. Our patients are suffering and dying on the list. And in spite of what Dr. Delmonico says, the data that I presented to you was patients dying on the waiting list for kidneys. And in spite of what Dr. Delmonico said to you of patients being inactive when they died, they were active when they put on the list. We could eliminate the deaths on the waiting list by taking everybody off the waiting list the day before they died. That's not the answer. You've got to realize these are patients that we screen, that we think are good transplant candidates, and we put them on the list in order to get transplanted. Now, I, Frank said maybe there's some patients who get put on inactive. All right, I'll give you 1%. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue small numbers here, but the majority of patients who die on the list were good transplant candidates when they were put on the list. That's the problem, not child pornography. All right, well, we're going to let Dr. Delmonte And i got to respond answer, to that. And then we're going to have one more so, question no, it, before we break for lunch. Okay? Of, of course ahead. it's not child pornography. And so there's no uh, uh, association of that with the regulated market, obviously. <coughs> but I just want to say a regulated – first of all, regulated market is not attainable. And I want to give you one example. During my UNIS presidency, matchingdonors.com, it exists in this country. It's an Internet site in which you can go and try and find a donor for a recipient. In my UNOS presidency, we were unable to prohibit this at all. How will Dr. Matus's market interact with matchingdonors.com? How does he think that he will be able to simply prohibit other Internet sites 
from taking over in that circumstance. That's one thing. The second thing I want to say is this. 30% of the list is inactive. That's not fabric. That's the fact. 30% of the list is inactive. That's 20,000 patients. Why are they inactive? And why do they stay inactive? Now, he says they were... They were eligible when they were placed on the list. Most of the patients that are dying are dying within two years of having been placed on the list and when they are inactive. If they are so suitable, why do they die so fast after having been placed on the list? The problem about their eligibility needs to be examined very carefully. I'm saying to you the waitlist issue is real as far as making an assessment of that before we march off to buy organs for people that wouldn't receive the offer anyway. All right, let's let's take one more question. I've been neglecting the back. Well, I, very quickly. Sorry, I just want to apologize. My point was is to is you know not to say that we should legalize child pornography, but the idea is just that. There are certain laws that we break in the United States. There are certain people that break laws. This doesn't mean that we should change the law in order to accommodate the system for them. That's the point behind it. Okay, Ben, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, we'll go to the question. (laughs) Okay. I've been neglecting the back. So back there, please. Last question. Uh, I I would be glad to hear comments of uh, each panelist on the issue uh, that has been discussed about the possibility of sale of these don- uh, organs compared to the uh, simil- such professions like soldiers in voluntary army who are getting to be paid for readiness to sacrifice their organs, part of their health, or even life for particular purposes. Military officers, bodyguards, that are ready to sacrifice their life for saving people and getting being paid for that. What is the difference between those professions and this business of donor? So the answer to that is how society views the volunteer service man, woman. They view that person with esteem. The coal miner and the firefighter and the policeman that take these risky jobs are in fact viewed by society with esteem. So do those individuals have self-esteem in taking on these risks. That's not the reality of the vendor donor that sells a kidney in poverty. Their self-esteem is impacted. They are stigmatized in the countries in which they've been vendors. That's why they don't come forward in Iran for follow-up checks. It's a much different perception of society. The volunteer serviceman is not considered to be a prostitute selling themselves. Look at what happened with Senator Kerry when he said, you better get an education or you'll wind up in Iraq. He was, that comment was a denigration, in fact, of volunteer servicemen. We hold those people in esteem. That's not the case of someone selling themselves or parts of themselves. It's a different matter by public perception of society. That's Frank's perception. In fact, we hold donors in esteem, and there's no reason we can't hold compensated donors in esteem. And there's clear data that Frank's aware of that there are many people who wish to donate who don't come forward to donate because they can't afford to take the time to do it or they don't have health insurance and so on. You know, you're hearing two ends of a spectrum here, but most people are in the middle. 
And of course, we're not only talking about compensating the poor, we're talking about finding a way that the people in the middle who also want to come forward can come forward. I would argue that we can have compensation with a culture of respect, dignity, and esteem for the compensated donors in the United States. Well, that's Arthur's view and opinion, but that's not the reality of the world. I know some of you need to leave, so if you need to go, please. But we've been, had a question up front here. If you really want to go ahead, go ahead. One more question really quickly, please. It's a, it's a question and it's a comment. Three years ago, uh, I donated a kidney. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend when we were talking about this, the surgery coming up, and she said to me, well, you know, if you get a little short on money, I'm sure the person who you gave the kidney to will pay you, is paying you for the kidney. I think the biggest issue is uh, the lack of education around this whole issue. Uh, when I gave the kidney up at Georgetown, you know, had a very intensive conversation with the psychiatrist around what my motivation was for that. I don't think it's going to be any different if someone is being, uh, if the motivation now is money, uh, you ask the question, who really cares about the poor? I mean, I, the average person that needs kidneys are poor people. So you're just really, you know, eliminating one side or the other, whether one person is giving up a kidney for another person who is poor to get a kidney. But, you know, it, it bothers me when we talk about putting a, a value, as uh, Mr. Crow says, putting a value on, the, the, uh, on organs and, and what, that, what that looks like. And as you well know, whether it's a kidney or any other organ, bone marrow or any, any other number of organs, it's many times generated by people come, that come from your own ethnic group. So, you know, you're still back to the same thing with poor people, ethnic people, minority people, you know, in this situation. I'm glad that you all decided to do this uh, uh, this topic. But, you know, I agree with I don't I don't think it needs to be regulated. I think that is, is it going to really motivate someone to uh, offer an organ only because you're going to give me fifteen hundred dollars? What is fifteen hundred dollars in this country when it comes to the, the bigger picture? But we're talking about it. And that's the main thing I'm concerned about. Did you have a question? No, like, I just wanted to say thanks for talking about it. I, I'm not for it. Uh, I hope that it will make people what the issue could be is, you know, the incentive around, or maybe this is, could be a question, the incentive around checking the little box on your driver's license. When I've gone to Georgetown to events where they've asked donors and recipients to show up, I'm the only living donor in the room. Everyone else is a, you know, a deceased, has received an uh, uh, organ from a deceased donor. So that's the real issue, people stepping up uh, to do the right thing and, and helping someone. And even in that particular case, people say, oh, it must have been a very close friend or a relative. So people are not that excited about giving up organs, whether you pay them or not. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming. And let's thank our panelists. And we can continue some of this discussion upstairs over lunch.